I've seen that look before I know you've been hurting more Than you ever imagined Do you wanna dance? Or do you wanna cry on my shoulder tonight? And I'm not usually this kind of guy But I'm looking for a stranger Good morning, good morning, good morning Cable Smith, welcome everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. That's a jam right there. Stranger Tonight. Brand new stuff from Mickey and the Moto Cars. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, as well as Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. We've got a great show lined up for you. I'm going to tell you all about it here momentarily, uh, but kind of a kind of a sad week for me, really, if you want to be quite honest, because the Texas whitetail season for most of us is over, right? And uh, I don't know if you're still hunting in your state, but uh, that's always a bittersweet end to a marathon of sorts. I've I've hunted more days for whitetail this year than I ever have and found less success <laughs> so uh, it, i don't know i guess that's the way hunting goes but i sat 36 different days and some days i sat all day some days i just did a morning or evening um, but 36 days i spent in the whitetail woods and only tagged one uh, I mean, thank god i got a beautiful nine point in clay county but geez um just for whatever reason things didn't pan out for me and uh, bummed about it for sure, but that's the way hunting goes. And I've heard reports from all over the country that this year was just a weird whitetail season. I don't know if you experienced that here in Texas, we got a little cold weather in November, a couple freezes. And then it was like freaking tropical heat wave for the rest of the season. I mean, you couldn't buy a 30 degree day if you wanted to December temperatures were like literally highs in the sixties and seventies almost every day. Uh, it was, uh, it was rough, but there's always next season, right? And those bucks that didn't get shot, they'll be a little bigger. So we can hang our hat on that. Um, we got a great show for you and I'm going to tell you about it right now. So you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire, pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat up old Stanley thermos. The one your granddad passed down to you. Still got mud caked on it from the 2010 duck season, probably older than that. I've never washed mine. Um, but I'm not going to say that I've ever even washed the inside. It's like a cast iron skillet just adds character. So pour yourself another cup because we are ready to rock and roll off the top. We'll be joined by my longtime friend and elk hunting buddy. You've heard him on the show many times over the years, but Chisholm cook, AKA at devoted archer on Instagram. Uh, he'll be here to discuss a truly once in a lifetime experience that his family had this past week on their ranch in Webb County, Texas. They caught a mountain lion in a snare. <laughs> a 135-pound tom, uh, which is a beast of a cat for South Texas. And, and these cats are showing up more and more frequently in that brush country. Why wouldn't they? There's tons of deer. There's javelina, feral hogs. You name it. The, the resources are there for them to thrive. But funny thing, Chisholm's dad comes up on the cat and puts it down with a 45 word gets around to one of the neighbors and they want to claim the cat because 
well, we'll explain why, but they called uh, Chisholm's dad and said, we want the cat. They got law enforcement involved, and uh, game wardens had to come and sort everything out. We will get into that momentarily. It's an interesting story, no doubt about it. Then we'll be joined by another longtime friend of the show, Greg Pavor of Pavor Outdoors. I just returned from my annual trip with Greg and the South Pond Waterfowl crew from Missouri, Sean Callahan and his guys. This is our fourth annual trip where we meet up in Seymour, Texas and hunt hogs and ducks. And this year I was uh, actually doing a little deer hunting uh, to uh, to end the Texas whitetail season as well. But yeah, Greg and I had a few bourbons and decided we'd talk a little hunting uh, and air it on this week's show. And fascinatingly enough, we also got a visit from a game warden based off of something that I put on Instagram. No citations were issued, but if you have a drone, uh, you might want to tune in because we learned some, well, relatively new regulations that were put in place that uh, I don't think anyone really has any idea what's going on. And the game wardens kind of were skeptical on how they were supposed to enforce it. So I'll play Greg and I's discussion where we talk about using the drone. Then Greg actually flew the drone the next day. And I'll recap what the game wardens relayed to us. So uh, interesting stuff. No doubt about that. That's what's on the docket for today. A couple other things to mention. Don't forget to send in your best hunting, fishing, or outdoor photo for a chance to join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch again in 2020. Our uh, grand prize photo of the year contest rocking and rolling right now. We'll announce the 2019 winner next week. So if you send in a photo, uh, stay tuned because you might be joining me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch in the lovely Rock Springs, Texas. Also, let's do a quick giveaway I've got today, uh, this one's brought to you by Vortex Optics. I've got a Vortex organic t-shirt. It's cool. It's got uh, an elk on it, and then the elk is labeled like by cuts of meat. <laughs> so you can see like ribs or backstrap, and um, it's broken up. It just says organic on it. And uh, we'll throw in a Vortex Optics cap as well. Just email the word Vortex to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you're entered to win this week's giveaway. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, my buddy Chisholm Cook joins us and we talk South Texas mountain lions and some unfriendly neighbors who tried to bogart their cat. We'll do it next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I sure love to drink it, but that's something I won't do. Because I ain't wasting no more whiskey on. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway, hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Yeah, you call it. 
Shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here as we are about to talk management, really, and how one family's passion for whitetail management led to an incredible encounter that occurred with a big old Texas mountain lion this past week. And more on that coming up with our good friend Chisholm Cook. But first, this segment brought to you by First Light and the Sawbuck Pant which, by the way, is perfect for that area of Texas where this story emanates from. That South Texas brush can cut you, scratch you, grab you, claw you. In short, it can be miserable. And uh, if you're out there, whether you're whitetail hunting or you're chasing those blue quail, the sawbuck pant is designed rugged enough to keep all that stuff at bay. Plus, it's got breathability in the crotch area, which is very important if you're doing a lot of walking, right? Uh, you can find it as well as First Light's entire lineup right there at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. All right, well, let's bring him on right now. He's one of my dearest friends, a longtime college buddy of mine, and someone who I've spent probably more time hunting with over the years than just about anyone else. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome Chisholm Cook back to the show. Yes, sir. Thanks, Gable. Always fun to be on. Absolutely. So it's been a a crazy week for the Cook family, <laughs> uh, one, a really exciting one, to say the least, and we're going to talk about uh, the the cool experience that, that you guys had on your ranch. Yeah, you know, people have heard us talk about elk hunting um, quite a few times over the years, but we haven't really talked about whitetails so much. That's really your background as far as uh, hunting goes and something that you and your dad um, have been doing in, in South Texas and before that, Old Mexico since you were a kid yeah that that's true um i mean i think that's probably the case for the vast majority of hunters in the states other than maybe the mexico part right but right. i uh growing up in the corpus christi area uh my dad was working his tail off providing for the family so it was actually my grandfather who started taking me hunting at a deer lease he had in uh live oak county mm -hmm. near three rivers South of San Antonio, uh, probably when I was five years old. Um, some of my, you know, favorite memories as a kid were, you know, running all around that little lease and uh, we built a high rack truck and spray painted it camo. I, I was four when we did that. My grandfather named it the Chisholm Express. So that was super cool. And, um, you know, shooting rabbits out of the top of that thing and eating them and, learning how to shoot everything from shotguns to, you know, handguns to long rifles. My grandfather, uh, this is my grandfather, my mother's side and my dad were both United States Marines. They were both sharpshooters. Um, you know, so I was trained, uh, how to, how to handle a firearm the Marine way since I was four or five years old. Uh, it's something I still take great pride in. And <clears throat> thankfully sometimes around, sometime around junior high, dad, reached a point in his life and career where he was able to, you know, spend more time taking me, uh, getting, he got on that lease with us or with my grandfather. And so we started hunting through, you know, that time period together 
And, uh, you know, he put me on my first deer. I guess that was like sixth grade, actually, when I shot my first deer. And, mm-hmm. you know, after missing, I don't know, half a dozen probably. Right. Uh, thankfully, my daughters who just got their first deer a couple of weeks ago are, are better shots than, than I am. They only missed once a piece. But anyway, <laughs> um, that finally that, that era ended. Uh, we ended up losing that lease. Like, seems like everybody does at some point. And um, thankfully, he had a friend that ran hunts on a big property in Webb County. Uh, so through high school, we were fortunate to get to hunt somewhat for free. We kind of helped out and I don't really know. Dad, this is a friend of my dad's that he'd grown up with his entire life Yeah, that ran hunts off this place. So I kind of got to freeload a little bit, um, you know, and shoot a decent pinpoint for the first time there. And, um, you know, really got to know there's a, there's only uh, an hour and a half difference, hundred miles, maybe from that Three Rivers area to, to Freer, Texas, which is near where this other ranch was, but you might as well be on a, in a different state in terms of landscape. So you go from that mix of live oaks and uh, and mesquite to just like you know true South Texas brush country. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was what that other ranch was like. <clears throat> anyway, hunted there and didn't get to hunt as much through college and law school. You know, being away from home. The education thing, I guess, but drinking uh, beer with cable. Yeah, we did a lot of that for sure. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, here, you know, in my, I guess, in my mid to late 20s, I got my career started and was back in Texas and got to start deer hunting again. But really, oh, and I guess during that time, that's when dad was hunting in Mexico. So, like, when I was in school, he had gotten a lease in old Mexico, like you mentioned. Uh, And I did get to go down there. Oh, like three times, I think, during that stretch. He ran that operation for like eight years. Hmm. And like three different Christmases, I got to go down there and uh, hunt down there. And it was always an experience. I mean, that is countryside is not that dissimilar to certain parts of South Texas. But I mean, you're talking 16,000, 50,000 acre ranches bordered by 50,000 acre ranches. It is truly like desolate, wild west. Um, you know, they don't, they're not allowed to own guns down there. So that's a process in and of itself. And when things really started getting squirrely down there, like 07, 08, uh, we kind of convinced him to give that up. Thankfully he found a lease again in Webb County. Everything comes back to Webb County. Right. Um, again, close to Freer, kind of between Freer and Laredo. And we hunted that starting in, I guess it would have been like 08, 09, up until three years ago when my folks found themselves in the incredibly blessed and fortunate position to buy their own piece of dirt. Uh, this one being a little farther West in Webb County, closer to like Catula and Encinal and the red dirt, which mm. for those who know about like the golden triangle and, uh, you know, Webb County, LaSalle County, Dimmit, that, that area known as the golden triangle, what really makes the golden triangle noteworthy and sort of famous is this strip of red dirt that's I measured it on Google one time and it's I don't know if I remember it's like ten to twelve miles wide by like forty to fifty miles long. And when I say it's red, it's this vivid, crazy red orange color. In some places it's bright and in some places it's deep, but you know, not that dissimilar to the Red River, but maybe a little bit more vibrant colored even. Mm-hmm. Um so all the brush is thicker and greener and healthier and uh it's you know, covered in bobwhite quail and big big deer with big red antlers and so what is it you know um, you think about the big buck hotbeds across the the country and you you think about uh 
Illinois' Golden Triangle, and Wisconsin over the last 15 years really has been producing some monster bucks. Of course, Kansas, and then there's South Texas. South Texas doesn't look at all like those other places I just mentioned. You know, those are hardwoods. Those deer feed on acorns and agriculture. These deer, these are rough deer down there. Uh, and I don't, it's amazing to me that you look at that country and these 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 bucks are still able to, to get to 200 pounds a lot of the time and, you know, produce massive racks. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I've read a lot about the history of deer hunting in South Texas. And I, I know kind of initially South Texas became one of those destination places for big deer hunting, I think in large part because it was so big and so desolate that bucks were allowed to get old, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. people make a lot about genetics and they certainly contribute tremendously. But, I mean, the biggest key to getting a big deer is letting them get old and big, right? And so you go, you know, back in the, say, 60s, 70s, and, and maybe even early 80s, you know, before high fences and before deer hunting became an industry to itself. and you know, people would find one thing about South Texas, I guess, genetically speaking, is the wide racks, right? Like <clears throat> that's that's sort of the, the typical feature that sort of South Texas is known for is this wide racks. So we do have that going for us. Um, and back in the day, I think there were just more old bucks. And then, you know, candidly, some things started getting shot up. Some you know ranches got shot up pretty heavily at that time when people didn't really understand what conservation was and what aging was. And, you know, the first three-year-old 150-inch deer they saw they shot. Um, and thankfully, that's turned. And I think some of the things like you're talking about in Wisconsin, it's kind of coming up. Uh, even East Texas, man. I mean, I, I've got some friends that have a lease in timber country uh, south of Lufkin, and they shoot 150 to 160-inch deer every year. And it's just because they've agreed to manage for age. And yeah. that's really fun. And, and trail cams, right? The surveillance helps seeing those deer at night and then being in the right spot when they finally slip up like during the rut. But, um, you know, just letting these bucks grow a little bit instead of if it's brown, it's down. Right. Mm-hmm. But then again, specifically in this section of South Texas known as the red dirt strip, that, that, that dirt, that coloration of the dirt and people should Google image it. It's, it's wild. It doesn't fit anywhere down there. You can see it from space, but it is gnarly iron content. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really really neat, but it's, it's iron content in and other minerals in that that dirt that give it that color, and it's also what gives everything that lives down there just uh, I guess more nutrition, more minerals than you'd otherwise get from from that landscape. But then a lot of the brush species themselves have uh, you know at different times of year they produce I don't know if it's technically a mass crop, but right, but like beans and things that. Yeah, like really high in protein. Mesquite. Yeah. yeah, mesquite beans are great for them. And, and actually, apparently, the little blooms that mesquite uh, put out when they're ready to, when they bloom before they start to make those seeds, they eat those off, kind of browse. Uh, black rush is supposed to be really good. I think Wahio, another one that we have down there, is supposed to be good for them. Um, so there, there's actually a lot more nutrients in some of that brush. And then in the red dirt, it's just, I mean, if you think that South Texas is known for being thick, you can't. <laughs> that creek bottom that you and I, tracked that deer through that one time the first deer i ever shot with a bow yeah that was a right yeah on on the other side of webb county this this red dirt is like that everywhere you know Mm. but that was a good one i don't know if you want to get into that for a second but uh Uh, i I don't mind talking about it but uh just from a time time standpoint you know we we ended up finding the deer he he got shot uh, a little high in the neck and that was 
<laughs> back when I, I, you know, I was pretty not, I mean, you hadn't even started bow hunting and now you're much more yeah, fast bow hunter either. than me. Yeah. Um, and that was the first buck I ever shot with a bow. And, you know, I had that stupid bow riding around in the back of the buggy with your hundred pound dog sitting on it. And you're like, there's a buck. And I'm like, well, cool. He came out into the Sendero and there's a doe. Well, that was what we were doing is we were corning the Sendero. This doe comes out. It's like towards the end of the rut and she's rode hard, put away wet. And this buck comes out looking at her. Not even like he doesn't even care. You know how, you know, deer get stupid during the rut. This is the most prime example I've ever personally seen because the damn deer let me yeah. shoot him with a bow at 35 yards while we're standing there talking. I mean, it was just insane. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. No, it was wild. I I have seen that time of year, you know, when, when you can be driving around and drive right by a buck that just stares at you. Yeah. But uh, that was the darndest thing ever that day that that buck just walked back out with us in the road, buggy sitting there talking. Yeah. And lets you fling that arrow at it. And funny how much has changed, certainly on, on my end in terms of, you know, you know, me, and my dedication to, to equipment and everything. Oh yeah, I, I didn't know anything about archery at the time, but I certainly wouldn't let you do it. Do, we would not do that today, knowing what we know about archery. And no, it's the but you know it's the evolution of a hunter, right? You a lot of it's trial and error for for good or bad or worse. It, uh, that's what it is, and that was an error. But luckily, <laughs> we uh, we stole victory from the jaws of defeat and recovered that deer. Um, it was a fatal shot. I mean, he was bleeding pretty good from his neck. Uh, just uh, Oh yeah. Not uh not where I was aiming, that's for sure. Um which that was I think you that might have been my first time. That was I think that was my first time down there hunting in South Texas with you on the uh the Mendiola and in subsequent trips, Chisholm, um I I remember another time where one of the guys hunting was one of your dad's uh, work buddies or something, said he saw a mountain lion. Remember that? And we yeah. went over there and we looked and we we oh saw, yeah, you. I forgot you were with me that time. Yeah. yeah. We saw the tracks, right? And we we're like, well, it sure looks like yeah. either a huge bobcat or mountain lion. The guy said he saw a mountain lion. Well, maybe he did. And so we took the uh, the predator call and you know sat up in a blind for better part of an hour just seeing if we could get the cat to come back in. It never did. But you know you hear, and it, and it happens more frequently every year. More cats keep you know they keep getting shot at deer feeders where these cougars are coming in stalking deer, right? They're it's like the dinner bell for the deer, which is in turn the dinner bell for the mountain lion. And uh, and then something, you know, absolutely crazy happened for you guys this week. And actually, just looking at the clock here, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and then we'll uh, we'll pick it back up with a little South Texas cougar tail. No problem. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Grab a 12-pack. On your way to the lake this spring, gosh, I can't believe springtime is right around the corner, uh, but yeah, make it a Lone Star beer. Celebrate tight lines and full stringers with the National Beer of Texas. On deck, it's a Texas cougar tail, and uh, a game warden gets involved to settle whose cat it is right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. My old friend has got an easy kind of style. A wandering soul and a welcome home smile And I can't imagine How it might have been Growing up without my old friend Hey guys, Cable here And uh, I want to tell you about Outdoor Access See, 
access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? Well, outdoor access is the solution to that problem. Think Uber, but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from. And it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, use the activation code Lone Star at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code Lone Star for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. Hi, this is James McMurtry. And thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I don't know what made me so brazen and bold At the time I was feeling so wasted and old And I can't dance a lick But sometimes I can flat rock and roll These things I've come Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show Getting a little help from James McMurtry Right there, love that tune These things I've come to know uh, we are visiting with my good friend Chisholm Cook, about to hear how they caught a lion by the tail, so to speak. Uh, maybe it was the neck, actually. But anyway, we will hear all the details on that South Texas Tom coming up momentarily. But before we do so, this segment of the presentation brought to you by John X Safaris. The date is July 25th through August 2nd. That is my gosh, this will be my fourth trip now with John X. There are two spots left. If you want to be a part of that, shoot me an email. Whether you want to hunt planes game, dangerous game, what, whatever you want, Carl and the crew will facilitate that. Uh, I think I'm going to be going after Cape Buffalo for the first time. So be cool to have you along. Um, bring your son, bring your wife, bring your daughter, whatever. Bring a buddy. Just shoot me an email. Lone Star Outdoor Show, gmail.com. Love to have you. It is truly a once-in-a-lifetime trip that has turned into four once-in-a-lifetime trips for me. So, yeah, just let me know if you're interested. Uh, with that being said, let's get back into it here with Chisholm, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. Appreciate it, brother. No problem. So we talked a little bit about you know your background in South Texas and uh, from Live Oak County to the Mendiola uh, lease that your dad had in, in Webb County and you know I've, a place that I've got to – experience quite a few times um that's kind of where you guys really got into uh to managing deer and then once your dad was able to you know get to a place where he could afford to buy his own ranch uh that's you know that's really been amped up i mean you have an excel spreadsheet of i don't know how many bucks but you know you've become very adept at aging them on the hoof you've got trail camera catalogs of all these deer and y'all's point is to carry them to a minimum of six and a half years and try to get them to even seven and a half, uh, seven and a half if possible. Yeah, absolutely. Like we were saying earlier, I mean, big deer first and foremost is about letting them get big. Mm -hmm. And that just means letting them get old. And, you know, it's funny how things work out like they should, or, you know, things seem to happen for a reason. But like you said, it, Particularly, you know, in my younger adult life, it, that kind of coincided with the broad understanding throughout the hunting community of, of 
about how important aging is. <clears throat> and, I, and I think you see it everywhere now. And I was fortunate to get to sit down with some biologists and, and hunt a few properties that, where that was a real focus. And so, you know, learning what characteristics to look for, you know, the Roman nose, the belly, the saggy back, the sort of over time deteriorating musculature. Um, the way they walk. All of those know? being, yeah, the way they walk. All of those being, you know, individual signs that paint an overall picture, right? And none of which you can really rely on exclusively and you should never rely on a single photograph to, to do that but you know to the point just learning what to look for and then getting a chance really starting there at that mendiola ranch in east webb county uh, where i got to hunt for several years a lot and getting to watch a lot of deer and and a good number hit the ground and then checking their teeth and you know and then really even and then really when i started bow hunting getting in closer to them where i feel like at least for me, I was able to perceive the hierarchy more clearly, right? Like the actual interactions between the animals. And mm. I mean, there's like, there's such a thing as a dominant buck. Normally Absolutely. they're older. They're, they're not always like six. Sometimes a four-year-old is the baddest dude in the field, but either way, like you see this pecking order, you know, you almost never see the old buck show up first, unless it's like, 10 minutes before shooting light <laughs> and then he, then he ghosts, right? Yeah. You can barely see him, but normally it's like, you'll have yearlings out and then a two-year-old, then maybe a three-year-old who wants to act tough until the four-year-old shows up, shows up and punks him. And then finally your five, six plus show up. But anyway, getting back to your point. Yeah. You know, now we have our own family place and thankfully we've had a chance to learn those things along the way. And so we're managing it. I, I think, really well at least for our purposes you know, i mean your wife shot a six and a half year old deer um a couple yeah. weeks ago that went well into the 160s right yeah yeah i mean this is our third season on the place you know so he would have been three and a half i guess that first year and i'm pretty sure i know pretty sure i had watched him and, and had some pictures of him specifically there were a couple of tens that first year that were both like a year apart and really impressive and i'm pretty sure he had to been one of them but that deer was a stud he was 21 inches wide you know, getting back to that wide South Texas deer thing. Um, and, and yeah, you know, our, our objective is to, is to manage the herd where, you know, thankfully we have an abundant uh, deer density. So we have a lot of deer. We like to eat deer meat. Um, I think as you and I have talked about on the show and, and certainly shared together and on Instagram and stuff, we, I've, I've fancy myself almost a gourmet wild game chef. So, mm -hmm. you know, I put a lot of, that's one of my biggest reasons for, for doing it. It probably is my biggest reason for doing it. So I want to harvest deer meat. And what we try to do is harvest the deer that don't seem to have the same potential as others. Um, understanding that, you know, certain things can happen. Uh, you know, we understand that a lot of deer science and QDMA this, these days say that it's difficult to really affect the genetics of a herd on a fair chase ranch, on a low fence ranch. Um, that's not so much our objective as it is to say we have an abundance of deer. We know how many deer annually we can kill without reducing that population. So let's pick out starting generally speaking at maybe three and a half when bucks really start to breed heavily anyway, picking those out, maybe not making a huge dent in the genetics over time, but saying the bucks that we want to leave will have less competition for resources, less competition for reproductive rights. Right. Mm -hmm. And then obviously keeping our 
buck to doe ratio rights, taking out the right number of does and, and just managing all that. And like you said, keeping what's really fun is keeping files. We've, we've got a lot of surveillance on the, on the ranch, um, probably two cameras per blind and we've got like 10 blinds. So, you know, 20, 20 cameras, 16 to 20 cameras, something like that more enough that it's a pain in the butt all the time. Right. But, uh, you know, keeping, that's almost as good a ratio as the 10 I have on my 25 acre place in Collin County. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's dense. <laughs> you can't walk across that place and you'll, you're on camera all the time. If probably. they're on there, I know it. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so you guys are doing a great job managing it and, and it's no secret. You and I have even talked about your little OCD. And so you, you love that, you know, keeping that Excel spreadsheet and, and monitoring these bucks and and you know I admire that that you are um, so passionate about the management aspect and part of that and this is interesting because you and I have always talked we've always had different thoughts on coyotes right uh, I have a shirt yep. that says smoke a pack a day and I'm and I'm fine with that and I don't shoot every single coyote that I see but uh, if I if it's not going to mess up a you know a big buck opportunity then yeah if, if I see a coyote I'm probably going to shoot it. Um, I've been on trap line trips, just you know, targeting wolves and coyotes. I love that stuff. You're always kind of like, ah, eh, nothing wrong with the coyote. Let's just let them be. Um, but now that you have this place and you're really getting a grasp of what they can do to a fawn crop specifically, you've, you've you know, just in our text thread, you've kind of changed your mentality a little bit this year. Absolutely, you're right. Um, you used the term evolution of a hunter earlier. Um, there, there's no doubt that, uh, that coyotes certainly can and do, you know, contribute to fawn mortality. Uh, I never, I never questioned or denied that, but, you know, I, I was raised again since four or five years old with the idea that, uh, you don't kill it unless you're going to eat it. My mom threatened to make me eat a lizard I shot with a BB gun <laughs> when I was like in fourth grade <laughs> in our backyard. Uh, in Corpus Christi. Um, thankfully, when I went out back out to get it, it had run off with a broken back leg, so uh, I was saved. But um, so anyway, that, that that sort of mentality had been ingrained in me. But the other thing too was, you know, throughout a lot of that history I just outlined, I never saw a lot of coyotes. I'd hear them, but I, I didn't see them when I'd be out sitting a blind or whatever, or or running around. And you know. I'd say the most hunting I did, I'd done prior to when we got on, you know, this property we have now was that Mendiola ranch there in East Webb County, starting in, like I said, Oh, eight ish through, I guess it would have been 2017. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I was there almost every weekend of the deer season. Uh, when we first got on that place and you were out there, I think that first season, we were coming out of a good period of several years of, of relatively wet weather for South Texas. Lots of big bucks, you know, fairly abundant for that region uh, habitat. And then the drought hit, that like eight-year drought. Mm-hmm. It just hammered, um, I guess, all of Texas, really, right? Oh, yeah. And we watched everything there just plummet. Uh, the deer quality, particularly antler mass, went down. Um, you know, obviously, their, their body health the quail population went down, the rabbit population went down, everything went down. And it just so happens that when we bought, or when, I, when my folks bought the place we have now three years ago, three years this March, that's when we came out of that drought and it started to rain again. So when we got it, 
we were like a year out of the drought. Tanks were full. Everything was green. And for the first two years, I, I went back to the Mendiola a couple of times because uh, we actually still leased that property. Um, and some friends hunt it and, and things. And <clears throat> so I'd spend maybe a couple weekends there, but most of my time at our place. And I started noticing coyote scat everywhere, like certain roads on both of those ranches. You'd drive down a, a long straight road and every hundred yards, there'd be coyote scat. And, you know, with those rains came improved health of the habitat, which again brought back the rabbits and mm. the quail and you name it, all the sort of things that coyotes, I think, make, you know, make most of their living hunting, right? Um, with that came, you know, the, the entire food chain seemed to be blossoming again. And for some reason, the coyotes just went nuts. And uh, this year, particularly on our place, I've been working hard to get a, an accurate count to really dial in how many animals we can harvest. And we all agree that even though we're probably a higher density than a biologist would recommend, we supplemental feed, we like how many deer we have, we don't want to reduce that. So it really comes down to how many fawns you have each year as to how many mature animals you get to take. Um, and I just, I, I've been working hard at it and I don't see that we have the number of fawns that I think we should. I think that, you know, I think it's a given, it is a given that you're going to lose a certain number of fawns to various different causes, oh, predation sure. being yeah. the biggest, right? Yeah. And there's just no way to avoid that. And frankly, it's part of nature, right? But at the same time, we seem to have a, a really low number of fawns this year. Um, and I, I mean, there's, I told you, I, more often than not, when I sit, and I'd say like 75% of the time, I'll see a coyote. And, I, and not only that, but I'll see them deliberately coming out downwind of the deer and scaring the deer off. Yeah. The other day, I, I shot one, and I mean like just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the day after I sent you and some other guys a text saying, who's in on this war? I've declared on coyotes. <laughs> um, I had some, it was right in the middle of the rut, and I had bucks running does, and two bucks ran some does off into the brush to my left, I guess, and they were over there, and there were still some does in the, in the Sendero, and all of a sudden, everybody just tails up bolts, and those deer come running out of the brush, tails up, and, you know, I hadn't done anything. Usually, they might get a little jumpy and, and take off 50 yards, and then they'll stop and check things out, but they ran through the brush. I could see their tails going through the brush, and they didn't stop till they were gone. And then seconds later, this coyote came out behind him. Yeah. He gave me just enough time to get my rifle on him and knock him down. Um, and I had shot one just the night before sitting. Like, again, not even predator hunting, not calling. Yeah, because I asked I you in the text because you sent these pictures. I said, when did you get a predator call? And you were like, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, just opportun opportunity shooting. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm a, I guess to your point about controlling their populations and stuff, I, um, Oh, what's that gentleman's name that wrote the Coyote America book? I'm blanking on it. Um, Dan. Uh, yeah, Flores. Dan, Dan Flores. Yep. Uh huh. Yep. He's been on the show. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And I've heard him on like with Meat Eater and and some other venues. I, I think, I think the proof is in the pudding as to his claim that you can't eliminate coyotes. In fact, it appears pretty clearly that the more pressure you put on them over time, the more they tend to propagate. Right. I mean, in the 30s, the U.S. government uh, offered they put something like 10 million dollars out for an eradication program, combination of you know bounties and, and funding poisoning of them. 
Yeah. And all they did was spread their home uh, territory from exclusively west of the Mississippi to now they're in Central Park, right? At the Absolutely. same time, I think, you know, you've always advocated, and I'm, I'm with you now. Uh, I don't know that I wasn't with you then, but I, I certainly have a different interest now. <laughs> I think that trying to hurt control that population, particularly in the months leading up to fawning season, if you want to make sure to give your fawns a better chance of living is, is important. That doesn't mean you're going to get rid of those coyotes. Nor right? should you, yeah, right? I mean, they're part right, of nature. And what I want to. Yeah. Absolutely. We love I hearing them talk. Um, yeah, of course. I, I love the sound of them, and I love the fact that I can dump a gut pile in the evening and a carcass, maybe two, and the next day they're gone. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> like, you know, it's they're, they're nature's uh, garbage disposal uh-huh. in a lot of ways. But um, to where you're going with this, you, you now realize, like, on a place like yours, you can never get rid of them. You don't want to, but you can knock their numbers down and kind of keep them in check if you if you really try. And that's why yeah. when you told me you started setting snares, I was like, really? I I never, uh, number one, never pictured you doing that. And number two, I was like, I didn't even know he knew how to do that. What, did you watch a YouTube or something? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> I did. I mean, they're pretty simple devices. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's just a cable and you make a, a loop out of it. Uh-huh. Um but I, I will say <laughs> there's definitely an art to it like anything and um, a learning curve. And obviously I haven't been successful catching a coyote yet, although it's only been a couple of weeks. But it's fun. It's trying to outsmart them. The, the, the cat and mouse yeah. part of it is really fun. And I told you I've, I've got, uh, I bought six leg holds now and uh, I've only put one out because I was just trying to use raw meat and I put it on Instagram and guys like, yeah, you might have luck with that, but what you need to do is get some uh, like lure. And so I've, since Amazon's great too, like YouTube, I went to <laughs> went to Amazon and bought all this lure and bought some more traps. They told me the ones that I had. They were like one guy was like, I lost a pile of fur with those traps. Get you some get you some uh, MB 550s. So of course now I have some MB 550s and um, gonna get, try my hand at those. But uh, the interesting thing is, it, you know, you you set these snares this past weekend, correct? Like for one of how how long have you been running the snare line? Oh, only, yeah, two weeks, uh, weekend before last. And um, uh, as a side note, I, I think I, so we've actually pulled them, and I, I'm going to, I think what I actually meant to do was get uh, footholds. Uh-huh. Um, there's a there's an Instagram page that I bet you probably follow, and it's a, it's a rancher very near ours called Las Raices. Oh, yeah. It has these awesome videos of, of catching bobcats in those foot uh, holds mm-hmm. and, then, and then releasing them, because mm-hmm. that's not what they're targeting. Um, I hadn't really paid close enough attention to the fact that they weren't using neck snares and it became apparent basically as soon as I got them from Amazon, by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, that, uh, the opportunity to release an animal was probably very, very slim <laughs> with the snare. Right. Um, so I'm going to be switching that up. We pulled them, but to your question, yeah, weekend before last. So the weekend of the, I, I guess like right after New Year's. Right mm-hmm. before New Year's, tech. yeah, right before New Year's. And then you were down there this I, past weekend, and you checked them, and yeah. you know, reset said any ones that have been uh, knocked over or anything like that. Yep, um, we had caught a couple things that weren't coyotes. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, they we we were. We, it looked like several of them were getting that coyotes were something was getting past several of them. Um, you know, caught a raccoon. That wasn't one of our targets. Um, so, you know, we did set them through the weekend. Um, 
actually the Monday, so I left on Sunday and that next Monday morning, I was talking to my old man who was still down there. And that's when he told me that they caught a raccoon. And, um, I told him, you know, uh, I'll let me, let's pull those things. Let me do some more digging, some more research and see if I can figure out a better way to target coyotes specifically, maybe with something a little bit more humane, uh, than grabbing around the neck. But then like an hour later, I get a picture of a male mountain lion, sure. cougar, <laughs> um, snared. And that's, that's the whole reason we're doing this. But, uh, yeah, like you said, to start the call off, it was, it became, it was the start of a wild day for sure. I yeah. didn't expect that. Back to, yeah. you know, here, here's, here we've come full circle now because we alluded to mountain lions earlier. And I said, you know, they're showing up more frequently in South Texas. We saw the track and tried to call one years ago at the Mendiola. And now here we are. The, the crazy thing to me is that, you YouTubed this and caught a freaking cougar within like two weeks of setting your first snares. People like snare religiously, like, you know, every hundred yards snare along their entire fence line and they never catch a mountain lion. It's like, it's a once in a lifetime deal. Yeah. It, it kind of was sinking into me late yesterday afternoon that, uh, you know, this, I mean, it's rare, obviously oh. you, you and I being friends, this was going to get around, you know, due to our relationship and you kind of promoting it. But this is one of those things I have a feeling that hunters all across the state that we'll never meet will be like, man, did you see that guy who snared that giant tom cat down in South Texas? Like, it's one of those hunting stories that will get a little a little run for, for a couple of weeks probably around the state. It just occurred to me that, it, to your point, it was a big deal. Uh, one of the big cat us. too. I mean, it wasn't like a kitten. Yeah, 100, 135 pounds for South Texas. People need to realize that's a that is a big Texas mountain lion. You can see the picture of of Lee uh, Chisholm's dad holding the cougar on my Instagram page, and it is it's got a big old pumpkin head on it. Um, which you know, yeah, th- like we talked about earlier, the food resources, the the deer, the javelina, the hogs. I mean, the opportunity for them to have all all of the protein they need is it's right there. Uh, South Texas provides all that, and, and they're becoming more and more common. So for people outside of Texas that aren't familiar with our regulations, or maybe uh, you live here and you, and you don't know much about mountain lions, they're treated just like coyotes or bobcats. Um, you can trap them, shoot them on site, shoot them at night. Whatever the case, there, there's no closed season or any regulations. Uh, whether that's right or wrong, who's to say? It, it uh, It's just not something that we, we manage in Texas, and um, there are a lot more of them than people realize, as evidenced by the one that your dad is holding in that photo. Uh, but what did your dad say? <laughs> what did your dad say when you when you talked to him on the phone? I mean, he had to be uh, surprised. You know, it, and it was alive it was, when he walked up on it. Yeah, it was alive when he walked up on it. He had his six-month-old German short hair with him. Um, and as a owner of one of those dogs myself, I can tell you that uh, they ain't scared of nothing. <laughs> so he was trying to hold the dog back and take a picture of the cat and obviously dispatch it. Cause there was just no way of releasing it. I don't know that he necessarily would have anyway, but, um, you know, it, he's, he's funny. My dad, like I mentioned, he was a Marine. Uh, he was an undercover police officer in military police force in the Vietnam area, late, late Vietnam era. So he, he's a tough guy. 
Um, I think he tries to play extra tough around me. He kind of was acting real cool about it. But I talked to our – Like every day, catch him out line. It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I talked to our mutual friend, Clay Bonilla, later in the day. And he had talked to Dad. And Clay said he was not cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> that cat was yanking that uh, – He's Dad said the fence, like, it's so – our property's not high fence, but a couple of the sides of our fences are the neighbors are high fence. Yeah. Our our west boundary and our south boundary are high fence and it was the south boundary we caught it on. He said like thirty feet in either either direction, this eight or ten foot fence was just thrashing. Hmm. Um got pictures of it, you know, while it was before he went up and, and dispatched it with his forty five. Um it was nuts. He, I talked to him, it was, you know, still laying there on the on the on the uh, the snare, and he was trying to figure out what he was going to do. But yeah, you know, then he told our neighbor about it. Our neighbors at one time owned the property that we have, so we're really good friends with them now. And he couldn't have been more excited. And you know, was like, man, you got to uh, they'll get you know they're going to build us a little camp house one of these days. And you know, he was like, you got to put a full body mountain there. Uh, I told Dad, you got to do one of those hug pictures with it, you know. And yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is, as I've sat and thought about it and processed it since I realize I love to think about what you're observing in the field and, and then piece things together over time. Um, like the other day, the buck that Ashley, my wife, shot that you mentioned, um, he'd been he had a bad left leg, probably just mostly due to his age. Right. And so he had a very small uh territory he was working consistently even once the rut started he really wasn't leaving this one blind um but he was tricky enough to not show up if you were in the blind it, like it took me four sits before i got eyes on him right mm-hmm. um thank it took her thankfully, thankfully it only took her like three but i was jogging i, I run the property when we're down there i'm training for a marathon for some absurd reason that is absurd i was jogging anyway. along near it yeah <laughs> side note but uh, as I was running a road right near that blind, and I mean only, you know, 150 yards from the blind and the feeder, I was just jogging along this brush line, and I looked to my left, and there was a little clearing, maybe 10 by 10 yards, just inside the brush. It's like a little, there's a draw that runs through there, and so it's like this little kind of bottom in the in the creek draw that's, that's kind of open, and a bush on the other side of it, a tree on the other side of it had been just whipped raw like a two and a half almost three foot rub and you know in a second i instantly knew that was ashley's butt like it took a big rack to make that rub and her deer was 21 inches wide it was too close to that feeder to been any other deer uh it was hers you know and and that was after the fact after having harvested him well cougar um about 18 months ago my cousin's husband uh, runs cattle on our place. A uh, guy that my wife and I have known since we were kids. We all grew up together. He's been in the ranching business his entire life. He was a cow. He's a true Texan cowboy, right? Yeah. Um, but also an educated one. He's actually got a degree in it and a master's in it. He's a sharp guy. Anyway, he told us, I think it was the summer before last, that he had seen a big, big cat probably a mile from where dad ended up snaring it at a water trough um you know just the way he talked about it he didn't want to go out on a limb and say he knew it was a cougar but he was like it was not a bobcat it was big big Mm -hmm. big big cat you know and um 
we'd have pictures, nighttime generally, trail cam pictures of cats. Um, one in particular last year that my mom was pretty sure wasn't a bobcat. And then uh, actually the Border Patrol has a camera in the same spot that Chance had seen this big cat at that water trough. They have a camera monitoring for uh, illegal immigrants. Which you guys have and, found a dead one on the property before, which is a side note, but an interesting one for your dad to walk up on that. Anybody who thinks that South Texas landowners don't deal in a very real way, r- real way with our illegal immigration problem in this country is fooling themselves. Yes, Dad did find a dead body one time. We had a guy walking down that exact same spot. The reason they have that camera on that water trough is because it's a obvious place for guys to stop and catch a drink. We were driving down on New Year's Day, the fence line. This dude was walking out in front of us, and he just climbed the fence and walked up in the brush. Like, <laughs> like he was supposed to be there. Oh, yeah. We didn't harass him, and I'm sure if we had, he'd have bolted. But <laughs> just like, okay, cool, whatever, you know. Um, that was actually the first we'd seen in almost two years because of the surveillance. You know, you find a dead guy, and you call the law, and the sheriffs can't show up, and the city, you know, the incident police showed up, and obviously the Border Patrol. And yeah. Anyway. Stepped up to surveillance and, and it, the traffic on our place had really died down. But anyway, they caught a, sh- a shot one night of a big cat. And, you know, at night, trail cam footage is not that great, particularly cats don't really ever stand still for you. So they're always moving. So they're always a little blurred. And, you know, scale is difficult to understand if it's cause a big bobcat is a pretty decent sized animal. And, you know, it's just a, a cougar, just a scaled up version of that. A lot of our South Texas bobcats will be more or less the same color as a cougar on their back and sides, but then they'll have those spots on their belly. My yeah. point is just that they can be easy to to confuse the two, particularly if you don't have a good shot of their tail, right? Yeah. So I had kind of always dismissed each of those instances as eh, 50-50 that maybe it's a mountain lion. Um, but in retrospect, I'm definitely confident that what Chance saw was this cat. And not just a cat, this cat. Because, as you mentioned, he's 135 pounds. You mentioned his pumpkin head. My dad and I have huge heads. We have seven and a half size hats. <laughs> and if you look at that photograph, that cat's hat dwarfs dad's head. Yeah. So That's uh, something that it's, it's uh, Chisel's big... buddies have given him a hard time about his entire life. Not, yeah. that it, not his ego. Not, we could question that, right. too, but the size of his dome. He's got a big melon. Right. Um, Going back to our days at Baylor <laughs> in 99-03, for sure. And so your dad walks up on this cat, and this is where stuff really gets interesting. You know, not that uh, catching it isn't interesting enough, but what happens next? It gets around to the to the neighbors, uh, not the not the folks that you guys bought the ranch from, but an, a, another set of neighbors. And next thing you know, is they're telling your dad that they want their mountain lion. So what 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 exactly happened there? Um, you know, I've, I talked to the game warden just kind of out of curiosity as to what should happen. Uh, your dad actually took pictures of the cat on your side of the fence in your snare what they were claiming was it was their snare and i did get a little crash course yesterday in our trapping laws in the state of texas i actually think they make good sense because you know if, if you think about it with as many high fences as we have in texas one of the best ways to catch predators is to you know set traps at and under fence crossings uh well even even if it's not a high fence you know there's yeah. obvious you know, crossings on barbed wire fences or, or hog paneling or whatever. And 
you know, it makes for an easy place to try to, to catch something. So, you know, it's a, it's a very foreseeable dilemma that you would have a pelt that is hung to a fence and maybe it's your trap and you set it and you managed it and somehow the animal ended up on the other side still clung to the trap. And then the question is, who does it belong to? Well, it turns out, game wardens informed us, it belongs to the owner of the trap. Whoever owns the trap owns the catch. Um, and I guess the fence is kind of no man's land. Obviously, you can't set traps in somebody else's property, mm-hmm. but you can set traps on your side of a fence. <clears throat> so what they were actually claiming was that those were their traps. And they have set some traps. Um, and the, the guy who's the foreman over it, and I think maybe some of the guys who leased some hunting rights off of it had been uh, running some traps. And uh, But the simple fact is that these snares were our snares. Um, we had set them, saw actually the photograph they saw was my dad bear hugging that cat. Somebody had sent it to him. And it's funny because then they forwarded it to uh, a guy that uh, was born and raised in that area and um, does a lot of work for, for ranchers sort of on his uh, spare time when he's not uh, working for the county. And they sent him a picture of that, my dad with the cat and said, hey, look, we killed a big cat. And he was like, you killed a big cat. Why is Lee Cook holding it? <laughs> right. Anyway, they got, uh, you know, they, they got the game wardens involved. The game wardens went and looked at the situation and, you know, we have a few extra of these uh, snares laying around and obviously they matched up. And at the end of the day, when the game wardens showed up at our place, it was just to take a look because neither one of them had ever seen uh, a big, you know, or seen a mountain lion period. Um, they had sort of already settled the matter. So the yeah. good thing is, um, you know, we get to keep the cat. Uh, it was, I guess, an easy enough thing to settle you know what would have been a real shame would have been if it would have just been a dispute that couldn't be resolved and you know parks and wildlife said well if we can't figure out who owns the cat we're just going to take it and nobody gets it right but Mm -hmm. um so i guess the law of the land is that whoever owns the trap owns the catch and even if it's on the other side of the fence see I, i never knew that that's uh yeah i mean it's common sense right but I shoot a white-tailed deer, and it runs across the fence before it dies. Technically, that's not my deer anymore. It's now your deer, and I have to get permission from you to go and retrieve it. And most landowners are going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, well, let me go help you find it. Was it a nice buck? There are the few and far between jerks that will be like, well, sorry about you. Either you can't come on my place, or I, want, or I was hunting that buck too, and, and you know, out of spite, just because you shot it, I'm not going to let you get it back. But... Um, common sense would say, you know, you set the trap, even if it's on the other side of the fence, it's still your animal. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, I think the law makes sense and it's very simple, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that we're, we're going to do going forward, I think when we switch, we're going to switch over, like I mentioned to probably footholds, but is to mark and label our traps with our name. Uh, I didn't, you know, probably a phone number, some way to get a hold of us so that there's not any discrepancy or, you know, yeah. No way for a similar uh, sort of conflict to arise. I, you know, for the next mountain lion that it. you catch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, right. Probably not that likely, but yeah. whatever it might be. Um, you know, growing up on the coast, uh, you know, you see a lot of crab traps and, and things like that, and you know that it's required that those guys have everything marked. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll do the same thing. But um, where, what is the current status of the the cougar as far as uh, what are you guys going to do with it? 
Yeah, we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get it mounted by your friends at uh, Rustic Reminders. Thank you, uh-huh. Rustic Reminders. I think they have uh, one of your. Did, I think they have Ashley's buck right now too. Yeah, and they did my mom's buck from last year, which was a pretty similar, uh, yeah, similar looking and and scoring, pretty nice uh, mature buck too. So yeah, uh, they did a great job on that one. Uh, I have no doubt they're going to do a great job on Ashley's and. I know they're excited to get a, a big uh, Tom. We were talking a little bit about about this cat in particular, and you know why I'm confident this is what Chance saw that day. You know, some things you, you pick up in a life of hunting and you hear, but when something like this happens, I'm the kind of guy who kind of dives in and wants to understand some things. And you know, like you mentioned, a 135 pound Tom is a big cat in Texas. Uh, Parks and Wildlife has a page dedicated to cougars and 150 is what they uh, sort of indicate as the high end of kind of the, the weight range of a full-grown tom. Like, a, you know, they, they said males generally run from 100 to 150 pounds, so mm-hmm. roughly 135. This was about as big as that cat was going to get, and they say that their age range is, their life expectancy is like 10 to 11 years old, you know, so just trying to estimate based on his weight and the fact that he's longer than my old man is, who's like 5'10", so, you know, he's well over six, probably more like seven foot long, yeah. including his tail. Um, you know, I, I figure this cat was seven or eight years old. They have a range. They have a, obviously they're really territorial and from, you get a lot of different estimates on, on what a territory range is for, for these cats, but it looks to be like a minimum of somewhere around 10 square miles. It's very rare unless you've got a pair that's, that's you know, a male that's come into a female's territory to mate, that you're going to have more than one cat in a, you know, eight, nine, ten mile square radius, it seems. So, you know, what Chance saw being only a year and a half ago would have almost definitely been the same cat. I think some of the pictures that we've seen very likely could have been as well. Um, not very likely we're going to see another one for a while until another cat moves into the area. But even you know, when I was kind of talking about Ashley, seeing Ashley's, that rub from Ashley's buck, one thing that we had noticed throughout this deer season, we've got a, a blind that's right near the fence line that we trapped this cat on. And in fact, it's one of the spots where we caught a photograph last season of a cat uh, that my mom was convinced was a cougar hmm. that had been the first two years, one of the best blinds on the place, like good middle-aged to mature bucks. I've filmed a hundred and 65 plus inch, like six year old 10 last year, uh, that was in there with another 150 something inch four year old 10, and then a like a three and a half year old 10 that's got great potential as well. Um, the year before, I think that's when I mentioned the two bucks, one of which was probably Ashley's buck. That's where I watched those deer, and it's just a place that's always got a lot of deer all season long. It had been a dead zone. Hmm. Uh, I mean, like maybe two or three deer one in particular one young like two-year-old 10 point was in there and that was about it four corn deer here during the rut there's been a couple of dominant bucks that have you know we're seeing like all over the property throughout the rut that have pinging through there um but for the most part really dead and my cousin was with us this weekend saturday night he and his wife sat that blind and saw one forked horn deer um i just thinking about it last night i'm convinced that that cat had been prowling that area probably pretty consistently 
here yeah. in the last, you know, for, for whatever reason this season. And, and I think, you know, if we caught him on a Monday morning. I, I can't imagine that it's not likely that he wasn't in the area Saturday evening. So I just think that his presence was keeping certainly the more mature bucks out of there. There weren't very many does coming in and out of there. You know, it's just, it's cool to sort of piece back together your observations when something like this happens, which is you know, just such a big deal and such a rarity. You know, when you catch a giant male cougar, it, and, you know, it's no coincidence that there wasn't a lot going on back there in that corner of yeah. the property. You think that they can't take down a mature trophy to South Texas whitetail buck? Yeah. One, one no bite doubt. to the neck I mean, and it's over. For sure. The research, again, that I did yesterday evening, um, according to the Parks and Wildlife, they're, they, I mean, it sounds like they do sort of discriminate, actually. Their preferred diet is whitetail and mule deer deer. You know, it does say that they'll they'll prey on javelina and rabbits and, you know, everything else that we have running around Texas. But, you know, it kind of makes sense that a big, powerful, fast animal wants to pursue. We know they're, they are hunters by nature to the extent where they'll go on killing sprees, you know, like, what do they call it, a... The pleasure killing or whatever, like they'll they'll kill and just leave stuff because yeah. they like it, right? And you know, a, a, a jackrabbit is no challenge for a 130 pound, you know, male mountain lion. So, you know, my first reaction when I got it's like eating a cliff bar, right? It's a snack. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an appetizer. Exactly. Uh, honestly, my my first reaction when I saw all the pictures was, man, that kind of sucks because I just loved the idea that that big cat is out there or that there could be. Right. And, you know, he, despite the fact that I like sneaking into blinds on foot, <laughs> you know, 30 minutes before first light and jog my perimeter right by that hole he was using, like the two days before we caught him, I just like to know they're out there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't what I was targeting. I was targeting coyotes, but then it occurred to me, dude, that cat undoubtedly takes out more deer than a pack of coyotes take out. I, I'm a firm believer. 50 a year, I would majority. say. It probably kills once a week. Dude. At least. That's exactly what I saw. A deer a week was what I found in looking. That's like a good average estimation that they could take out a deer a week. Yeah. And if that's mostly what they're going after. Actually, my dad said that deer, that, I'm sorry, that mountain lion had meat in its claws yesterday yeah. when they were looking at it. it like embedded in the, you know, the kind of hollow underside of the claws. Uh-huh. But he had killed something most likely maybe that morning or the night before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think coyotes prey on fawns when it comes to the deer, right? Fawns and, and, you know, when it comes to mature deer, most likely sick animals that are on their way out for one Post or Post-rut, right? a run-down buck. Maybe so, yeah. yeah. But I don't think that... You know, I've always heard about coyotes been... is... Uh, so the reason they don't kill a lot of does is because the does run. Now, a right. mature That's buck who's lost 40% of his body weight, he doesn't know that he's lost 40% of his body weight. He's mentally right. still going to try to take those coyotes on, and usually one will get in front of him, and he'll you know, he'll have his antlers pointed at them, and then that's when the other one comes in and tears up his Achilles and hamstrings him. I could totally see that. You know, my, the, my thought was both bucks and does generally will just outrun them. If deer have Achilles, I don't got, know, but that same – that area. <laughs> they, def, they definitely do. But, yeah. yeah, that's what you hang them by when you got them upside down. Yeah. But, yeah, I can see that, right? A buck – I mean, like I mentioned earlier, you can drive right by a buck in the rut, and he's looking at you like he wants to fight you. So they, they definitely lose their minds, and they – yeah, they uh, run down, and they're 
you know, I could see that. I think the point just being like, it's somewhat seasonal, limited windows when they have those opportunity opportunities to take down both fawns and full-grown deer. Point being, that's what this cat was designed by God to do, was to take that animal down, right? So there's no doubt that we save more deer taking that cat out, and calves, we know we run cattle on the place too, um, than, than taking out, you know, five, ten maybe coyotes. Absolutely. So we're still going to work on that. So I was able to process through the initial sort of guilt feeling of taking out this just amazing animal to, you know, once, once it became so apparent that from a conservation perspective of what we're trying to do with the ranch, it was the single biggest kill we could have possibly accomplished. And then, so again, it was not like we killed a juvenile. We killed a big, mature Tom. It was, it was a pretty neat thing, man. Uh, I can't wait to go see it and put my hands on it. And and going back to what you said earlier, what the hell is your dad going to do? Let it out of the snare? No. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. There's yeah. there's really only one. Even if he wanted to let it go, which you know, I'm trying to manage for white-tailed deer, you don't want to let it go anyway. And it's cool. Like it's awesome. You got a mountain lion. But uh, for anyone that's like, well, you should have let it go. I'd like to see you try to do that with a 135-pound cat in a snare. Uh, someone video uh, that and send it to me, and I'll share the crap out of it. <laughs> right, it, it would have it would have legitimately been impossible. Yeah, it, the cat he thinks that it had just been snared, and you know I've got no reason to contradict that. It was definitely still alive, strong, and pissed off. And you know I do think it's sort of an argument, and a big reason why we're going to ditch the snares and, and go to those footholds is that it's just not really an option with anything that you catch, right? Because those things get so cinched down that, you know, getting them off even once the animal has been dispatched is, is kind of tough. Like he ended up cutting the wire because he couldn't get that snare uncinched, right? So versus a foot trap or foothold, I guess, you know, you, you can, I bought one of those uh, dog catcher poles, you mm-hmm. know, noose pole things so that you can subdue the animal with that, get the foothold off and let them go. Um, so we're going to switch to that. But to your point, if he had caught a giant mountain lion in one of those, uh, that pole wasn't going to help him. <laughs> that's right. for a bobcat, eh? For, <laughs> for a cat that's as big as he uh, is. So. As we wrap this up, um, and when I when I finally took my mountain lion in Colorado, they have such a different management philosophy. You know, it's, it's strictly managed. There's quotas from, from each unit. And then the game warden comes out, and, it, and he takes a tooth and – sends the tooth off so that they can age the cat. Here in Texas, the game wardens just come out just to kind of gawk at it and say, nice job. <laughs> yeah. It's totally different. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why. Everything from politics, but but to me, a big part of it is the hunting culture, specifically that, you know, which is somewhat dictated by terrain. Out west, you've got terrain that is well suited for pursuing that animal with dogs, right? Absolutely. And those guys will chase a cat all day long until they tree it or get it stuck on a rock outcropping or whatever. That's not, I, I, I can't imagine that's feasible in South Texas. You can hunt pigs with dogs because at some point those dogs can catch a pig in reality. You're, there's just nowhere to effectively tree and stop a cougar in South Texas. So, I don't think that if there was anybody who even wanted to do it, that it would be feasible. It just, it just, I don't see it as a viable way of hunting them there. And in reality, it's the only effective way of doing it, right? Yep. So the reason that we have, have you know, people maybe from out of state, particularly out west, might just be appalled by the fact that 
There's no regulation of mountain lions in Texas whatsoever, yet you pointed out their population is on the rise. The reason they're on the rise is because it's a super stealthy, elusive animal that unless you're hunting them with dogs, you're just not going to come off, come across often enough. I've seen one in my life and it was for us the shortest millisecond. It darted across the road and over a hill. And that was it. As long as it took me to say it, that's what it was. But I know for sure it was a cat because it hung out on either side of the two track as he crossed the road. Right. But you know, most guys have that type of experience. They saw one for a second. They wouldn't even have been able to grab their rifle, much less shoulder it. So yeah, being that the only effective way to get them is to hunt them with dogs. It makes sense that out West they've got to regulate it because you could hunt them to extinction if it wasn't regulated, but here, especially with the snow, I mean, once the snow hits, it's a fresh snow is, is, you know, game over for any cat that you've come across their track and you've got good dogs. That's another great point about the just ecology, right? Is those guys, there's always levels to everything, right? If you're a fisherman, there's, you know, you know, bait fishing, which I do is at the bottom. And then there's artificial fishing and then there's fly fishing and then there's dry fly fishing. Right. And, in the cat world, you've got the dry ground hunters versus the snow hunters, I guess, right? And the point being that dry ground hunting those cats is way harder, even with dogs out there, than doing it in the snow. Well, there's another reason why we can't hunt them effectively in Texas if it doesn't snow, right? Yep. Like ever. Yeah. So it just, I don't think that if they started putting bounties on them, that we could ever effectively hurt the populations in texas i just you know it just is i've tried to do a uh, a west texas in you know the davis mountains um mountain lion hunt there are some guys out there who every year kill four or five you know a handful uh they're the banner brothers and and then joe brayman has some good dogs as well but i asked them and they said yeah it's not really a hunt that we can like book because it's so random when we actually come across one he's like when we come across one the dogs will catch it but it's it's not like Colorado where you can go out and just cut a track a couple times in a week. It's like just by yeah. chance that we come across one and then we go get the dogs. So it'd be cool to get one in Texas. And uh, and now one of us has one, but uh, <laughs> it's yeah. awesome, man. Yeah. But even, even, you know, West, at least in West Texas, you're talking about comparable terrain somewhat, right? I mean, it's yeah. Rocky, I guess the bottom of the Rockies, but you know, it, it, open spaces, much thinner brush, big cliffs and things, you know, South Texas is rolling hills and brush so thick, your dog can barely get lit through it, let alone you, right? So. Yep. Rustic Reminders are going to do a great job with the uh, with the mount, and I look forward to seeing that thing in y'all's camp house when, whenever it's finished. Yeah. Um, it'd be cool if you came down there one of these days. It's only been <laughs> three years since I've been trying to get you down there to check it out, but yeah. I guess you're 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 too big of a an outdoor media star. Please, please. <laughs> uh, was wasting too much time bow hunting yeah. in Collin County this year. That's the reality of it. But uh, uh, next year, moose hunting and yeah. too. But whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> Always great to visit with you, buddy. And uh, congrats on on the catch of a lifetime. No doubt about it. Yeah. Thanks, man. Like I said, it was a it was definitely a fun day, and it definitely got a little sideways for a bit there when there was a dispute about. Who got to keep it? But thankfully, uh, the laws are well crafted, and uh, we had the right of it. And so, yeah, like you said, it'll make a really, really cool addition to the little house we'll have out there one of these days. So awesome! I don't know where we'll, I don't know where we're gonna put it in our single wide trailer in the meantime. <laughs> Good stuff as always, buddy. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.
All right, man. Talk to you later. So there you have it. Uh, right place, right time as far as Chisholm setting that snare line. Uh, absolutely incredible. And, uh, hey, it doesn't hurt to have a little luck on your side. But uh, props to him for, for taking the initiative to, to start setting snares. That segment of the show was proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics and Arluck Outfitters, offering the finest in Newfoundland moose hunting. Check them out at arluckoutfitters.com. Coming up next, it's a bourbon-fueled discussion on Texas hog hunting, waterfowl, wild game recipes, and the use of drones. Flying them on your own property? Well, it resulted in a visit from the old game warden, from my buddy Greg Pavor and I. We taped this at his uh, at his lodge last weekend. We'll play it next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Our outdoor show. Flatland Calvary bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. Thanks to you guys for being here, as we've got some intoxicatingly good stuff, and no pun intended. But Greg and I uh, did have a few snorts of bourbon before and while we taped this uh, discussion. Probably even a couple after, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, we're going to visit with our friend Greg Pavor of Pavor Outdoors concerning hog hunting and uh, drones and their application in photographing or videoing wildlife because there's a lot of gray there. And we learned something uh, this week that we certainly want to share with you guys. Uh, that's coming at you here momentarily. First, though, this segment brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging and the new Thermion rifle scope it's a 30 millimeter tube meaning you can use your already existing rings and bases if you've got a 30 millimeter 
rifle scope on one of your rifles, uh, yeah, just swap it out, man. It's it's the Thermion. It is the best thermal rifle scope that I've ever used, hands down. Uh, internal recording, all that good stuff that you know and expect from Pulsar. And you can find it as well as Pulsar's entire lineup right there at PulsarNV.com. With that being said, let's jump into our conversation with Greg Pavor of Pavor Outdoors. We taped this at about 10 p.m. on, I think it was last Friday night. So uh, don't hold that against us. <laughs> well, Greg, it's nice to be here back in Seymour, Texas at uh, Pavor Outdoors. We've been friends a long time, and this is always, um, well, we meet the guys from, or I meet the guys from Missouri here. Uh, Sean and company and we hunt ducks and hogs but you and I have been friends a long time and getting to hang out with you is always one of my favorite weekends of the year oh absolutely cable I'm always looking forward to what we're going to be eating <laughs> um, and uh, I know we both like to eat some weird different things but uh, I think this year you're going to bring uh, some food that I've never have ate yeah we're going to have some around uh, the world. wild boar um, liverwurst that a friend gave to me, and then we're going to have some moose and also some Nilgai um, sausage variations, all different kinds of sausages, so certainly looking forward to that. You're going to cook me up a nice breakfast tomorrow, too. I don't know if you're if you're going to tell me what you're feeding me or or if that's kind of still a surprise. It's, uh, it's going to be authentic. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know what asadero is. I, I do not know asadero. Asadero is some uh, homemade uh, cheese that they make down in Mexico. Nice. With some uh, cream from uh, a cow. Uh Um, Not pasteurized. You won't die. (laughs) But uh, it's it's very delicious, and we're gonna we're gonna have some roasted roasted chilies with some macadero and some eggs, and it's gonna be delicious. Sounds good. And uh, if you drink enough bourbon, then I don't think it'll kill you anyway. No, you get some hot peppers, a little bit of bourbon, and. Think between the the hot and the, the alcohol would probably kill everything. <laughs> which we've had a couple bourbons tonight. Uh which <clears throat> we don't always go on the air after drinking, but we've been friends a long time, so feel comfortable doing that. <laughs> we got some funny stuff to talk about. We've known each other long before I was doing this for a living or you were an outfitter. What are some of the most god awful questions that clients and it could be potential clients, like they call you on the phone and and you've got a map over there of the entire of north america and you've basically had people come hunt hogs in texas from all over the continent Um, but what are some of the most ridiculous questions people ask you when they're trying to book a hunt or they're here and they're like what what i mean you told me earlier (laughs) some of the stupid things that they say it's like what come on just spill the beans here okay put me on a spot no that's all right a lot of my uh, good customers, clients, they do follow you and listen to you, so I gotta, <laughs> gotta talk carefully here. <laughs> Trading on some, some uh, thin water here. Um, oh, you know, I try my hardest to put people on, um, wherever they're coming out to hunt for deer, hogs, ducks, whatever it may be. Uh huh. You know, the majority of my hunters are hog hunters, and you know, I run cameras and go scouting and, um, you know, we have dinner and talk about where each person's going to be hunting and stuff that evening and tell them about the situation. And um, the most frequent question I get now 
about every single week is um, when I take someone out to their blind is if I was having bad dreams. <laughs> I, I don't know if they can hear that, but yes, uh, <laughs> Greg's dog Milo is dreaming of chasing a mallard duck right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's got them quite yet, but yeah. he's having Bill some, does the same thing. Dreams. It's funny. It wakes, sometimes it wakes me up, and I just laugh. I'm just like, oh, they're having a good time. He's actually, like, growl barking while he's sleeping right now. But, yeah, so they ask you, they, what do they say to you? Oh, just, you know, I might go out hog hunting and tell them that, you know, I'm going to uh, take them to this uh, feeder and blind. And the most frequent question is, um, have you ever seen any pigs there? Or is there any pigs um coming to that feeder and they they actually drove from out of state and booked to hunt here to hunt pigs right oh yeah and they're yeah, asking yeah. You if there's any pigs there <laughs> they, they come from long distances away and um and they you know come to shoot pigs and uh, i do my hardest to put them on pigs uh-huh. and they'll ask me you know if, uh if i've ever seen pigs or any pigs coming to that area I don't know why they would think that I would put them there if I'd never have seen any pigs there. But um, uh, it is funny um, uh, question, but um, I, I guess I've just gotten tired of hearing the same question over and so over. What do you, so what are you are you smart aleck to them sometimes now? Not so much. I try to be nice. But <laughs> when someone asks me if I've ever seen any pigs there, I have to say no. Never have seen any pigs there. I just figured you have a lot of luck, and we'll see what happens tonight. What about on the fishing side of things? So springtime, um, and then I know you also chase those those big winter blue cats. Uh, or there's some ridiculous things that people ask you when you're when you're taking them on a, a charter fishing trip. Not so much on the fishing. Um, not so much on the fishing. Mainly the hunting. Uh-huh. You know, it just just makes me laugh when you say, "Well, have you ever seen a deer here?" Or um, uh, have you ever seen the pigs here at this feeder? And just makes me wonder why would I ever put them there if I never have seen any <laughs> pigs or deer there? So you and I were going through your your memory cards earlier, checking your trail cameras, and I think you told me you had like twenty something feeders. I don't know how many acres of, of property you have leased, um, in addition to the Harmony Ranch here where your lodge is that you own, but you were saving like one picture from each card. And tell us why tell tell us why you did that as an outfitter. Oh gosh, Cable, you're you're really trying to prime my brain tonight. Um, uh, oh, just you know, I I run cameras. <laughs> you know, one camera could have three, four thousand pictures in a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and, always saved one. I was watching you always and, click one yeah, and drag it into this other folder for you know, one specific reason. My my computer can't handle all these thousands and thousands of. Pictures, <laughs> That's not the reason. But I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uh, you know, I I do it from time to time. Every once in a while, I might get someone that that says, "Well, I don't believe there's any pigs out here, or, or I didn't see any pigs last night, and you told me it was a really good spot." Well, um. You know, I live out here, I'm out here every every day, every week, and I'll save a picture from uh, the past night or the past couple nights in case someone really doesn't believe there's any pigs out here. They'll have pictures from the past day or two to prove to them <laughs> that there is pigs there where I'm putting them at. Right. And I'm not just out here to steal their money and, and you know, take them on a snipe hunt, you know. Have you ever had... A client tell you, well, I didn't see any pigs. And then you go and, like, you maybe it wasn't even that day, but you pull the memory card later. Or maybe they were deer hunting. And 
the animal was there, but they were like asleep or something in the blind. Have you ever had that happen? Okay, well, um, you don't want to talk about this stuff, but this is like when, this is behind enemy lines. Is like the outfitter <laughs> spilling the beans. It, people know when, this stuff happens. You might as well just say it. You get it out well, there. It doesn't make you any less of an outfitter. I mean, it, hell, it makes you better for putting up with the, all the BS you have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> well, when people come out for three nights in a row, hog hunting or deer hunting or whatever it is. Um, and someone hasn't killed nothing. I really try my hardest to find the best spot to put someone at. And um, you take it personal, some spots, right? Oh, you take yeah. it personal. If they haven't seen anything, then yeah, you, yeah. Once yeah, everyone's successful, but I'm uh, there's some spots that I'm uh, I've put in people, and they've told me that they didn't see anything, and it was just so hard for me to believe that they sat there and did not see anything, and I know. That there's been pigs there every single night. Right. And it's either they're out there peeing and pooping around the blind or they're on YouTube on their phone or, <laughs> or watching, you know, inappropriate stuff or doing whatever they want. You know, whatever people do in the blind. I don't know. You know, I'm uh, I'm afraid to ever put a camera in the blind. Oh, my God. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I do have cameras at my feeders and some of them go to my phone. And I have had um, people um, falling asleep in the blinds, and I have um, pictures of pigs on my phone right now, and I'm waiting for them to text me saying a pig down, <laughs> and 10 minutes goes by and there's pigs still at the feeder, and I have to tell them, hey, pigs are at your feeder, wake up. And I have to text them and call them, and, I'm, uh, and then um, sometimes they wake up, sometimes they're pretty... They're pretty passed out sleeping. Yeah. You know, it comes 12 o'clock at night. They're they're dreaming and snoring away. Mm-hmm. There's pigs there at the feeder. Yeah. And um, uh, and sometimes they come back say they didn't s- see anything. And um, <laughs> I go down there the next day, and I grab the SD card out of the camera. Oh, I'd love to be there for that exchange just one time. Of, the the oh. faces are priceless, Cable. <laughs> when you look at their face, it's priceless. Because you got four or five other guys standing around too. Yeah, and um, and I pull up the SD card and oh, the nut kicking from their buddies after that. And is... I said, "There's pigs there at eight thirty. Well, I was dozing off a few times. Oh, right. That's always the saying. <laughs> I was dozing off a few times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but they come back and they tell everybody they didn't see any pigs. Uh huh. Um, uh, but there really was pigs there. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. So this part yeah. of Texas. Um, and I always tell people when, because I come here frequently to hunt with you and they say, well, where's Seymour? And I say, oh, it's basically like halfway between Greg's going to get a little, little more bourbon here. He's shaking his head. He doesn't like, he doesn't, Greg doesn't, he likes to have this spitting clean image, but don't let him fool you. He's a good old boy, just like you and I, but, uh, this area of Texas, why does Seymour, you go ahead and put some more bourbon in my glass, too. Why does Seymour have so many pigs, Greg? And ducks, for that matter. Because um, a lot of people do, this time of year especially, will do a uh, hog hunt slash duck hunt. That's what Sean and, and the guys from Missouri, I think, what is this, our fourth or fifth annual year with them? I was just thinking about that. I haven't gotten a computer. It's either four or five. But, yes, it is, it is our fourth or fifth year. But so why does Seymour hold, in this area, hold so many hogs and ducks? Well, hogs, um, you know, <coughs> Brazos River runs through Seymour, uh-huh. Baylor County, 
animal, of course, naturally, uh, deer and hogs and animals run up and down these river basins and river systems. And um, Seymour, there's a lot of ranching involved in wheat fields. And these pigs, they really like that wheat a lot, just like the cows do. And you can go out there and watch these pigs with night vision and thermal, and they're out there grazing that wheat just like the cows. Mm. No different. They're not out there rooting up the wheat and stuff. They will do it, don't get me wrong. Sure. But they will be out there just like a cow uh, grazing. And their fat content's amazing. Um, just the environment. Um, do you remember the the uh, pork chops that you gave me? A couple. It was like a year ago, maybe. Yeah. And I was. I think I cooked them up in a skillet. And I posted a picture on Instagram. I remember that. And some guy was like, "Those are like just telling us that we were lying, or that I was lying. That those yep. were store bought pork chops because of the marbling and fat on them." Yep. I was just like, "Dude, I don't know what to tell you." Greg gave them to me. He the church. <laughs> hey, I was about to say a bad yeah. word. He sure as hell didn't get them from the store. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that is correct. Well, you know, I get people that hunt with other outfitters and all throughout Texas, and I, I can only speak for here in Seymour. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it does seem like, you know, where there's a lot more acorns out in East Texas, Piney Woods, and South Texas, just the environment's so different. Yeah. And I can't speak for that, but um, uh, I just know uh, the conditions of the pigs here. Yeah. And um, when I clean the pigs for my clients, I show them the fat content, and everyone's really amazed. You can have an inch or two of fat layer um, on some of these pigs, boars and sows, and it's phenomenal. It's like really is the most buttery yes. pork chop that I've ever had. Yes, which is why some guy was like, "You bought that at the store." <laughs> like, well, no, it's uh, we that, we shot it in Seymour, so that that is that is completely correct. Well, Greg, I think this is a good time to work in a quick break. Maybe refill your bourbon glass. Um, that segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Check out the Big Chingone. It's what I've got on my dear lease. The whole family can enjoy sitting together. It's that big. It's got carpet to uh, keep the sound those kids make quiet. It's got cup holders. It's got windows for bow and rifle. So whatever you fancy, it's got you covered. It's the Big Chingone. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. When we come back, we're talking ducks, drones, and an educational visit from the old game warden. We do it next on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. The Lord loves the drinking man. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, They've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. 
Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them Cable sent you. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Well, I ought to be drilling for that black gold, swimming in that Texas tea. I can make a killing all on my own, selling my misfortune. Welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Hope you all are headed out to Heritage 2020. It's going on this weekend, January 9th through the 12th at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center in Dallas, Texas. That's DSE's annual convention and sporting expo. It's going on right now, so hope to see you out there. Uh, I'll be out there every day as I'm a volunteer on the Exhibitor Welcome Committee. Then uh, in the afternoons, I'll be walking around, taping uh, interviews and visiting with you guys. So stop by, and maybe we'll, we'll have a nice cold Lone Star beer as well. Um, we are visiting with our good friend Greg Pavor of Pavor Outdoors. We recorded this last week while I was in his duck and hog camp. And we're going to pick it back up with Greg here. And then at the end of the discussion, uh, I will break down exactly what the game warden told us concerning the use of drones and viewing wildlife. Now, I've talked to people from Ducks Unlimited over the years, Greg, and they've said that as the terrain has changed, you know, ranching, especially in like this, in the more rural parts of Texas, in the Central Flyway, has become more prevalent in the last 50 years. It's kind of altered the course because we used to have all the, the rice prairies, you know, Katy Prairie and, yeah. and all the ducks and geese and um, specks and snows by the hundreds of thousands would winter down there. There's still a lot of ducks winter on the coast, right? Mm-hmm. But as far as coming to the end of the Central Flyway, a lot of them hang up here and, you know, in North Texas and um, instead of making it all the way down there and, and the terrain has changed and, and even DU will tell you that now it's more of a, a fragmented migration than it ever has been yeah that that is that is true and you know seymour um you know we're we're in the northern part of texas where we do get our water um that will freeze over maybe the longest period of times of four or five days at the most but, you know you start going a little more north into oklahoma and kansas when those uh potholes and stuff freeze over that forces the birds to move south and once you get to around Seymour area, you know, we don't freeze over for super mm-hmm. long periods of time um, to really push the birds out. But um, we get a great variety. We could shoot five or six different species in one hunt. That's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, well, uh, it was probably four years ago, maybe. 
our mutual friend Zane Williams came down here and we had we poor Belle. I mean, I usually don't put her vest on because we don't need to in Texas. No, that cold. day she yeah. needed her vest and she had freaking icicles <laughs> hanging off of her beard. I mean, it was cold. But I, I do think we shot like six different species in the three man limit that day. Yeah, yeah, we did limit out and I'm uh It's all pond hunting. Yes. Sock tanks, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, they they will hold to certain ones. Um, uh, you know they're all different. Some are shallow, some are deep, and it's all about the vegetation that they have in them. Which leads me to what I really wanted to get into. You just showed me this video, and seeing it on Facebook didn't really do it justice because the quality of the drone footage was looking at it on your computer was just amazing. I was blown away. You're showing me this footage, and and you've got your drone probably a hundred feet above. The, the ducks and you can see them clearly on the water and i was like but you can't really tell what species they are and you're like just wait <laughs> and you fly the damn thing down greg <laughs> to within like what 10 feet off the water the closest i got was uh six feet above them in and the water. and and at this point i can now i'm picking out and i'm saying oh you got widgeon gadwall mallards teal i mean you could see everything that was on the pond you could make out the sex of the birds <laughs> It was absolutely phenomenal, and from a from an outfitter standpoint, how much of a game changer has that technology been for you? Uh, drone technology is really amazing because it helps out in so many different ways. You know, I would have to, you know, you got, um, I don't care, how, it doesn't matter how big the property is, you could have one pond, five ponds, ten ponds, or flooded areas or creeks. And to scout, you have to walk to each one of those spots and peek your head over and try to see how many ducks. Because, you know, if you look over and see five ducks, there's a big difference between five ducks and 40 ducks. You want to hunt the Mm -hmm. pond that has 40 ducks and not five ducks. But you want to look over the pond and see what it has on there and then without scaring them off. You don't want to scare away the ducks that you want to hunt the next day. Right. And so that's why I can never be an outfitter because I just shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> when you go over that pond, damn cable. And you're a liar. Anyone out there listening right now, if you're telling me that you've never jumped a tank, I'm going to tell you that you're a damn liar. And if you haven't, you might as well. It's fun. I mean, the, the dog doesn't discriminate. I don't discriminate either. But uh, it's, it's definitely tough when you go over that pond dam. You see a whole bunch of pintails and green heads. And, and you got a camera and, instead of a shotgun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Makes you want to go back and get that shotgun. Yeah. 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 But when you're outfitting. So um, you've got all of these properties in all of these ponds. And basically you can just drive your truck into a field and fly the drone over there. And Yeah. Oh, so the so drone, um, flying the drone, I could fly mine a little bit over a mile. Mm-hmm. And um, I can go down on the on the ponds it does not spook the birds it doesn't harass the birds it doesn't bother them um which is amazing people don't understand that like and and i was surprised when you told me like six feet above them but then i've also done the falconry thing and we were talking about that off the air like these these ducks are programmed they see a a bird of prey in the sky they don't want to get off the water and when you do a falconry hunt and you're you're duck hunting with a falcon. It's a bird slash human team effort, and the you put the peregrine up in the air. The people walk over the dam and flush the birds, and that's when the peregrine makes it stoop and you know smashes one of the ducks. That's pretty cool. And they probably think that 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 drone is you know 
It's a threat it's to foreign, them. It's a foreign object. It's, mm-hmm. it's a threat, like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. They, they're uncertain of it. Yeah. But for you, it's absolutely, it's wonderful. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I could see where they're feeding at because, you know, I want to match, you know, if they're all feeding on the left side of the pond or right side of the pond. When you throw out your spread of decoys, I try to match what they look like in the wild. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at Ducks Unlimited magazines and their website, and they talk about G formations and V formations and all these different formations to put your spread. Well, go out and look what the uh, ducks are actually doing in the wild and just match that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which if whether you're scouting with a drone or you're out on the lake in a boat, you're doing exactly that. You're trying to mimic what you saw the ducks doing the day before all things you know equal wind and everything else so it's been a game changer for you and the is that is that 4k like it is 4k oh my it god is, that's what i was it like is, it, it is <laughs> you know i post some videos on facebook and uh the quality is not there uh-huh. and everybody i show the videos on the computer it's just super high quality you can see the leaves in the vegetation um it, it's it's amazing you can see um you know uh, them nice pretty green heads shining in the the sun and in the pintails and i mean just the beauty of them um it, it's it's really amazing what you can do with the drone um this brings up an, an interesting rabbit hole and we're going to go down it right now but that is like the ethics of of uh of scouting with something like that and i think it's very important that people realize i would never and you would never advocate hey we're going to use a drone and we're going to go find a, a 300 inch bull elk right but if you're already going to that pond where the ducks you know that they're there what difference does it make if you look at them with a drone or if you have to physically walk over there i don't it, to me it makes no difference now i think that pe- some people might say well you shouldn't be using a drone to scout at all eh, i just don't you know we use technology we use trail cameras right to tell us as a management tool um i've put trail cameras on the pond before sure on the edge sure but as as an outfitter i mean do you get what i'm saying like i do how do you differentiate personally and i'm just kind of telling you where i'm coming from like i would personally never use a drone and and be like and it's i think it's probably illegal in most states probably should be in all of them anyway say hey i drew a sheep sheep tag let me go scout them with the drone right That, that doesn't seem fair but with waterfowl there's no guarantee those ducks or geese or whatever are going to be there tomorrow they're free to come and go as they want all you did was just say hey they were there yesterday let's uh, roll the dice and maybe they'll be there again this morning um it's not like you found a, a big game animal and just went out and whacked him don't know what to think about using drones for big game i had never have done it uh-huh. i don't even know how it would work i've never have dropped a drone down on a, a nice white tail or a pig mm-hmm. um, i have not done that so i don't know the reaction i don't know how it would work or even if it would work um i have strictly just used it um for scouting waterfowl sure and you know i'm going to go look at those ponds on foot or by drone it's just the drone's faster yeah. and i'm uh it doesn't scare away the ducks and it doesn't disturb their um behavior yeah yeah it's fascinating and I think as a, as a hunting community, it's just one of those things like some people are like just so against, you know, any type of, I was reading online the other day, people like say you shouldn't use Google maps. Like what should you, you should buy the topo map from the, uh, 
U.S. Geological Survey, what isn't whatever it's called, and then you should scout that way. I'm like, why wouldn't you just use Google Earth? Like, right? I mean, like, it's right there at your fingertips. And it's some I don't know. Sometimes I think, yeah, there's instances where technology probably goes a little too far. But for me, this is a this is a nice luxury to have. You know, if I'm not using the drone, I'm going there on foot anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, maybe it make I might gain a more few more pounds over the years uh, having to walk to each pond <laughs> but, but it saved me time <laughs> yeah and, and speaking of the pounds over the years what, let's talk about some of the stuff that we've we've uh eaten on these trips and i know in and even before that like you told me some of the stuff like oh, you might have been the original pioneer in my life like you tried to eat a beaver tail which you said was not good <laughs> Um, and then like five years, four or five years ago, we tried to eat a bobcat, which <laughs> I think was palatable when it was slow cooked, but we made the mistake of, uh, not using any seasoning whatsoever. And we were like, let's just get the full flavor profile of the animal. And we took a back strap, <laughs> threw it on the grill and immediately all of us wanted to basically vomit when we put it in our mouth. It was pretty bad. Yeah. I would say it was in the, I, one of I the worst things I've that. ever eaten. I will be honest on everything that I do eat, if it's good or bad, and I will say the bobcat was was uh, unedible. <laughs> <laughs> what about the? Uh, <laughs> Did not get swallowed. <laughs> have you have you tried raccoon? I have tried raccoon fried, and you know anything's good fried. Sure, sure. Ra raccoons are very greasy. Yeah, very yeah. very greasy. A lot animal. like bears, and uh, in that aspect, as far as the the grease factor is concerned. Um, this week we're going to eat moose. We're going to eat Nilgai. That's awesome. We're going to eat the, uh, the stinky cheese that, uh, you're going to fix for breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> and I don't know what in the hell Sean and the boys from uh, Missouri are bringing. I've got that, uh, that wild boar liverwurst. So last year we did, uh, duck tongues, which duck tongues are actually talk about that, that recipe. They've gotten very popular. A lot of people. Well, I think maybe um, you had really something like to do with that. Yeah. Well, I'm a duck tongue. Don't think I'm too crazy. I got it off of, uh, you know, Chopped, or it was like one of the, you know, Food Network channels. Uh -huh. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. I kill a lot of ducks. So let's try the same recipe. It's just you pull a duck, you pull the tongue out of the duck's mouth, and I'm, uh, you wash it up, throw it in the skillet with some butter, onions, and garlic, salt and pepper, and that's it. Uh -huh. And then uh, you eat it. It's kind of like a, a little chicken wing. It's got a little bone in the middle, and... You basically hold that bone and then yeah, pull, pull the, the flesh off with your teeth. Tear it right off with your teeth, and it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, it's real good. So last year was the first time that I tried that, and then went back home, and, and uh, we shot a mess of ducks You know, a week or two later. Kept all of them, <laughs> made it just like that, um, and then put a little uh, – actually, though, I did – I, I, Yeah, it was, a, it was a, like a sriracha. And I breaded them a little bit, so it was more of like an Asian-inspired version of it. But, man, I've got a video of my kids just devouring them. Was, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. No, was, that's great. <laughs> it was it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, wild boar testicles. <laughs> yep. And you can't tell the difference between wild boar testicles and Rocky Mountain oysters. Um, I, sir, I certainly can't, no. Uh, you know, everyone like I've ever mm. uh, served them to, they... Yeah, they can't tell the difference. They taste the same. They're very, very tasty. You know, 
Um, Rocky Mountain oysters um, are served in a lot of restaurants here in the South and Texas. Yeah, and it's it's very popular. There's no difference with the with the it's boar. a hundred percent a mental block. Like yes, food is I food, agree. meat is meat. Whether it's a testicle, a heart, a kidney. I mean, this is all food that 150 years ago no one would ever have thought of wasting any of it. Right. We, we I mean, waste a lot of uh, meat now, Cable. Yeah. America does. Um, we waste a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of good food. I, I, I've, in the last three or four years, become a fan of, of whitetail kidneys, which th- some of this stuff takes a little prep, right? You know, you have to – it's comfort food, and you, you got to put your heart and soul into it. But the reward is that you know that you, you utilize that animal to the full extent – and you can right. make some amazing culinary dishes, experiences to share with friends. Like you shared the duck tongues, like we shared the uh, bobcat, which was not as good. Uh, but um, and that's right. And the kidneys, you know, I'm, uh, when you told me that, I tried it, and it was it was unedible too. But I guess I didn't peel <laughs> peel a layer off yep. there on the top, so that made a big. You got to get that membrane off there. But uh, you know, um, over Christmas, um, my fiance's um, uh, mother. Um, she made some menudo and had some pig feet in there. It was the first time I ever ate pig feet, uh-huh. and um, it was very tasty. It was delicious. So and, you know, next year we're having waste, wild we waste, hog we a lot of things, pig feet. Yeah, but um, uh, <laughs> it was very good. Uh, the pig feet and the menudo. Uh-huh. Uh huh. One thing that you told me you've started doing this year, and and I think initially it was from it stemmed from feeding your your bird dog Milo here. The uh, what people would say is the scraps and you know, the heart and kidney liver of the of ducks, which in a lot of five star restaurants they use to make um, foie gras, right? Which yep. I told you I've had one time in the Dominican Republic. Maybe not the place to have it. It was on our Aaron and I's ten year anniversary. I didn't like it. It was like if you've ever tasted earwax accidentally, it was like just that with like a little nuttiness, and I was not a fan. But uh, then you're like, you know what? Screw Milo. I'm gonna eat it myself. And and you uh, you've been pleasantly surprised. You know, actually, I'm a duck liver. Um, here not too long ago, a couple months ago, I had a professional chef uh, chef here. Mm-hmm. We were hog hunting, and uh, he showed me how to cook hog liver uh, professionally and how he does it in the restaurant. And it was phenomenal. It was amazing. And then I uh, killed some ducks and um, cooking it for Milo. I said, well, let me try to cook it the same way. And it was even better, very mild, not chewy. Um, mm. The duck liver was just actually very, very, very good. I was huh. surprised. Huh. And, and so how did, how did you actually prepare that? Well, you know, a duck liver is not much there. Um, well, it's more than a duck tongue. <laughs> yeah, it is more than a duck tongue. I will give you that. There's it, more liver than tongue. I will say that. Yes, you are correct. I'm, uh, same thing, you know, just kind of get some butter in a skillet and with some onions, garlic, salt, and pepper mm-hmm. and saute it all together, and that's all you need. And mm. with a little olive oil, and that's that's it. Oh, okay. Fascinating. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Well, maybe we'll have to try that this weekend. We're gonna go. Yeah. We're gonna shoot some. Hopefully, get into some some birds on Sunday, and then maybe uh, Sunday afternoon we'll we'll have a little uh, duck liver. Yeah, you appetizer. 
So, you bet. Well, Greg, I'm looking forward to uh, what the weekend holds, my friend. It's always, like I said, it's always a treat to come out here and and hunt with Pavor Outdoors and see more. Yeah. Oh, always, always good hanging out with you, Cable. Uh, we'll be eating good and can't wait to try that moose. And All right, buddy. Well, hey, thanks again. No, thank you, Cable, and I'm, uh, let's go have some fun. Well, so there you have it, the uh, the bourbon-fueled conversation with my buddy Greg Pavor. Going back to what I said earlier, though, as far as the game warden's involvement, the next morning I got up and went deer hunting. Greg, I think, slept in till 7.30 or 8 and probably had a little bit of a hangover. But uh, when I got back to the lodge, he was like, hey, man, you wanna, do you want to actually see me fly the drone? And I was like, sure. Um, so he was like, grab your camera and take some video. It would be cool for people to see it. So I did. Posted the video on Instagram. I'm now back sitting on the couch later that morning. And uh, Greg, I think, was taking a dump, to be honest with you. Knock on the door. Game Warden shows up 45 minutes after I post the video of us videoing ducks with the drone. And and I said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm guessing you're here because there's something not right with the drone footage. He's like, yeah, where's Greg? And I said, oh, he's in the restroom. So anyway, Greg comes out. And game, it's a Baylor County game warden, and uh, he's very nice. And he said, you know, guys, there's just really, uh, it's, there's not a lot that people know about the regulations concerning drones. And personally, me, Cable, I, I've never had a drone. I don't know any of the regulations. Uh, I know what I think is ethical versus unethical as far as using a drone to aid in the harvest of an animal. Uh, like you find them and you go out and smoke them, right? No. Uh, 100% against that, as every hunter should be. Uh, but Game Warden comes anyway, and, and he's like, well, here's the thing. Uh, what you did is not illegal, but you you have to have certain permits to do that. So there are, and this is for anyone out there who owns a drone, and I'm just telling you, this is what the Game Warden told us. Uh, you have to have an LOA form, land authorization, landowner authorization form, which Greg is the landowner. That being said, he still has to have the form. A lot of people, just from my post on Instagram, which got hundreds and hundreds of comments, um, some positive, some negative, but a lot of people didn't know you had to have that. So, And then you also have to have what is called an AWM. That is an Aerial Wildlife Management Permit. These are both issued by Texas Parks and Wildlife. Now, the Aerial... The uh, aerial wildlife management permit is $210. So just FYI, you also have to take a class. And and once you have those two permits, you can legally fly your drone. You can look at wildlife. You can, you can do whatever. Legally scout for ducks. Um, here's another thing, though. If you're out there using that drone to capture footage like B-roll or whatever for, say, you're filming a hunt, You've absolutely got to have that AWM permit. And even if you're just out flying your drone on your property, you still have to have the landowner authorization form, that LOA. Uh, so the game wardens uh, weren't jerks or anything. They, they were just coming out to do their job. They even said they this was the first time either one of them had ever dealt with this issue because of the nuances of, of drone technology and that these regulations haven't been in place for very long. They're, they're literally like only 18 months old. Um, so stuff that I knew nothing about, like I said, don't have a drone and based off a lot of y'all's comments, even folks who have drones, um, people just aren't aware of these required permits. So 
Now you know if you didn't. And, and the game wardens were, were nice. They were just out there doing their job. Uh, they didn't issue a citation or anything like that. And uh, Greg will be acquiring those permits going forward. Um, so, anyway, uh, thanks to our Texas Parks and Wildlife game wardens for, for coming out and educating us and, and giving us the opportunity to educate everyone else. Uh, and they <laughs> they said they actually were following my Instagram page, and that's how they, they saw that and, and then uh, showed up literally minutes later. So it was certainly an interesting morning. Um, we would go and actually have a great hunt the next day. I think we harvested, I think we got 26 ducks the next morning between seven guys. So a uh, great time. And as always, enjoyed the weekend with Greg and Sean and Jeff and the guys from Missouri, Eric and Mike. Um, it's like our fourth annual time to, to do that hunt. They all took a hog home and a bunch of ducks. Uh, that segment of the presentation brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of. And, uh, hey, maybe you want a place to go fly a drone on, <laughs> right? Or maybe you want to run cattle. Or if you're like me, you want a place to go hunt and fish, right? Whatever the case, you just want to get the hell out of the big city. Uh, but whatever the case, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping their borrowers finance their own piece of paradise. For over 100 years, they'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Uh, unfortunately, just looking at the clock here, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Greg, as well as our other guest today, my longtime friend Chisholm Cook. We will do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time. I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. So I got my daddy's name stitched across my chest. And now I can drop a man from about two clicks. I wonder if he's proud of me yet. I've got my daddy's name stitched across my chest.